There we go. Today is the 4th of July, Independence Day for the United States of America, a day of celebration, a day of, of getting together with families and having picnics or barbecues and food and, and fun outside. It looks like it's still nice out. And fireworks to end the day with, whether it's community or what seems to be more and more, everybody's neighbor. Um, but it's, it's all with the intent of saying, thank you, God. Hopefully people are thinking, thank you, God, for this nation. And, and being thankful and, and celebrating all the years of freedom we had. And as I said at the beginning here, that uh, in, the, in the prayer, that we have, we have troubles in our nation. We have things we want to overcome, we need to address. But we're still blessed. And we need to today just uh, agree on that, that we are a blessed nation and we're thankful that we're here. It's a good day to look at Acts 2 for that reason. Because Acts 2 is an even greater freedom. And it was the start, it was the beginning, the birthday of the church. The birthday of this institution, this, this body collection connection of all who come to God through His Son, Jesus Christ, through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, moved and motivated and and, and filled and empowered by his spirit to continue to carry that message and, and, and to, to guide our lives, to uh, align ourselves with his ways in this world and the promise of eternity beyond this world. The church began at Pentecost. The church began in this writing in Acts chapter 2. But I chose this line from Peter, I think it's the, the 14th verse, when he says, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully. I chose that line because this is also a passage of scripture which is misunderstood, misinterpreted, sometimes misused and even abused, and it doesn't have to be that way. Because when you have in the middle of the, the scriptural text, the part of the Bible you're reading, the story before you, someone say right in the middle, let me explain this to you, then you don't have to look really far and wide for what it really means. Now understand, there's parts of scripture that are confusing and mysterious and difficult to understand. And, and we're blessed to have so many great scholars and different commentaries to, to, to help guide us to understanding to what the Bible is saying and teaches and how it can and does apply to our lives. And, and certainly not to say we can't do that with Acts 2, but I want to take a fresh look at this passage with that verse in mind that Peter says you, you don't, here, here's what this is about. Here's what's happening. So let's, let's look at that. And so because of that, I, I want to look at, first of all, what Acts 2 doesn't say about the coming of the Holy Spirit, because there are a lot of teachings that try to force their way into Acts 2 that aren't always there, okay? You'll, you'll understand as we go forward. Uh, the first one then is, there was a violent wind. It doesn't say that. It says there was the sound of a violent wind. 
So it wasn't as if the disciples were there and them and their long hair and their clothing, you know, um, with, with their, their um, cloaks was flying around. Nope. There was no wind. But it sounded like it. And that's what drew the crowd. There, it was very loud. So, so imagine, you know, we had um, some pretty good wind last couple of days when those big downpours came. There was a, there was a burst of wind that, that came with it or right before it. And, and, and you know that noise, and you see the trees move, and things shake around, and your patio furniture starts flying around. You got to go pick it up, and got to go close the windows in the house because there's a wind. But imagine if you heard that sound, but you went outside, and it was still. That's weird. And that's what the people in Jerusalem were experiencing. There was the sound of a wind, a very strong wind, but there was no wind. And it's coming from over there. And the disciples were in there, and something happened to them. Now, here's what it wasn't. It wasn't actual tongues of fire that came upon them. It says in the text, in verse 3, it only seemed like tongues of fire. In other words, as Luke is writing this, he is very likely, not sure, but very likely getting this information, at least in part, from Peter. Him and Peter crossed paths. He knew Peter. So, so when Luke is writing this story and, and his gospel, in the gospel of Luke, he would go to sources. He's a good historian. So, so he asked Peter, Peter, you were there. Obviously, you were there. What was it like? And Peter has a hard time explaining and describing it. And so it was kind of like these, these little tongues of fire, and they came on us. It was, it was, it was scary and, and, and wonderful, but we can't understand it. We can't completely explain it. It's kind of like reading the book of Revelation. John gets this vision from Christ about um, future things, future to John, and when he wrote it, some of which was fulfilled in his life, some of which is yet to be fulfilled, and we'll get into that another day. All right? But just even if you know just a little bit about Revelation, you'll, you'll hear descriptions of very strange beasts and um, various um, creatures, and, and, and there was all these numbers going on, and there's bowls, and there's, um, there's scrolls, and it's, it's a... It's a very hard book to understand and to interpret. And, and a lot of that is what's called a Jewish apocalyptic writing to exaggerate something to get a point across in very big and broad ways. It was, it was, it was a style of writing that didn't just happen in the Bible. But anyway, Peter, let's assume it was Peter, telling Luke about this event is trying to describe it as best he can. It doesn't mean it wasn't miraculous or strange. It just means it wasn't literal tongues of fire. What's another way, another thing that Acts 2 doesn't say about the coming of the Holy Spirit? It doesn't say only the 12 apostles received a gift of the Holy Spirit in that first moment. Now, that, it might have been that way, but what it says in the passage is that all of them who were there got it. In verse 4, all right? So, uh, and if you read earlier in Acts, in the first chapter, you'll see where there was a lot of people. So it, it, we, we don't know how many were there. We do know at the end of Acts, he lists the apostles, and then they replaced Judas with Matthias, and they talked about that at the end of chapter 1. But it doesn't say 12. It wasn't like there was 12 mysterious 
something like tongues of fire coming on 12 different people, okay? It might have been that way, but it doesn't specifically say that because I've I've heard that taught and it might have been, but I'm, I'm, again, sticking with exactly what it says or doesn't say in Acts itself. And if there was another verse somewhere else that said that, pointing back to Acts, then, you know, I, I, we can be corrected about that, but it doesn't specify 12. This is another teaching you might have heard. If you hadn't, that's okay. If you're familiar with the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, where God comes in and he's, he's concerned about how humanity is, is advancing too quickly and in the wrong direction and their hearts are wrong and they're going to build a tower to God. And so he comes in and confuses their language. And, and so people had to disperse because they couldn't communicate anymore. Well, there are some scholars who say this is the God reversing that. Now, I get that that's an interesting theory, and I'm not, I'm not saying that's not true, but what I am telling you is it doesn't say that in Acts. It doesn't say that in the story. It doesn't even hint at that, okay? So Peter didn't talk about it, and Peter could have. Peter chose to talk about a prophecy from Joel, which we'll get to in a moment, but he didn't mention anything about Genesis, Tower of Babel, confused languages, or any of that. But the connection between Language and language, I can, I can see where people make that connection, but again, it doesn't say that specifically in Acts chapter 2. And then um, number five, this is something else it does not say in Acts 2. Speaking in tongues was a spiritual language or a, a uh, angelic language or as some sometimes call it a a prayer language, okay? That's not what's happening here, all right? So people talk about speaking in tongues as Paul is writing about in his letter to to the Corinthian church, especially chapters 12 through 14 of that of that letter. That's not what's happening here. And, and that's an understandable way that people will blend those in. They think, well, speaking in tongues. It happened at Pentecost. It happened in Corinth. See, it's this. It's this mysterious language that God blesses someone with, prayer language, language of the Spirit. That's what it is. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. What I am saying is it didn't happen here. Okay? So just draw that distinction. Corinthians is something else. It's in the Word of God. It took place. I know it takes place in people's lives today. But it's not what happened here. All right, because it says in verse four, these were known languages, other languages in the world. And there's a practical purpose for that in God's plan. People from all over the known world were gathered for the feast of Pentecost. And so because there was a crowd there and because if you, you know, jump to the end of, of Acts 2, we'll get to that next week, but... At the end, there's 3,000 plus people who came to Jesus. And those 3,000 were among these people who were all over the world. So eventually, they were going to go back home. They were going to go back home having received the Spirit and having the, if they have the Spirit of God, then they'll understand right away the desire of the Spirit to tell others, to take this message beyond them. So strategically, it was exactly what God wanted to do, to get that message when all these people were there and then eventually have that message go forth well beyond them. So 
The crowd gathered, it says in verse 6, they heard their own language. And, and Luke goes to the trouble of listing many of the places they came from. And each of these places had their own language. I don't know if any of you are bilingual. I am not. I know a, a handful of words in other languages, you know, but I really don't know. I, I couldn't speak fluently in anything but English. And sometimes that's in question, you know. But um, if you know, a lot of people know Spanish and can speak both English and Spanish. Um, French. French, yeah. I, I can't speak uh, Russian. I can say nyet, that's, that's about it, you know. So the miracle, and it still is a miracle, is that these apostles never knew the languages of these places that these people were gathered, and all of a sudden, by the Spirit, enabled by the Spirit, they could do that. So it was miraculous. It just wasn't a prayer language, angelic language, spiritual language, any of that. It was an, a known language in the world that until that moment, they didn't know before. They couldn't speak before. Now they can do it. And that's what helped draw the crowd. Um, so as I mentioned, this is not the same as what Paul's writing about in 12 through 14. So again, specifically in Acts 2, in this story as is written about in Luke, um, that's what the speaking in tongues here is all about is a known language to promote the gospel. Um, now, another term, again, if you've never heard this before, that's okay, but I do know some people that run into this um, from a more Pentecostal charismatic um, influences. I've heard this term used, drunk with the Spirit, or drunk in the Spirit. And um, I'll say just very plainly, there is no such thing in the Bible. It just It doesn't exist, all right? The connection that some people make is, in verse 13, when they heard this noise and these guys talking strangely, they were kind of laughing, you know, oh, you guys are drunk, for, you know, come on, you're, you're, this isn't something from God, you've been drinking too much, you know. And Peter, brilliant move on his part, he makes light of their accusation. Come on, guys, it's nine in the morning, are we going to drink now? And then he goes on and says, you know, really what it is. But this term drunk in the spirit, some people have made that connection with Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, when um, Paul says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the spirit. Now, that is also a verse that is simple. Simply take at face value. Paul is warning them about the dangers of alcohol, just like we know today. The drunkenness is a problem, especially if you get behind the wheel or, you know, around people where you're not going to control your tongue anymore. And a lot of damage happens because people don't control their drinking. It was no different then. He was just warning them. He's saying, don't get filled up with wine and get drunk. Get filled with the Spirit. So it doesn't say be drunk in the Spirit. All right? And I've heard people use that phrase, and it, it, it bothers me because it's not there, but they kind of bridge this, connect the dots between Ephesians 5.18 and Acts 2, and it, it's not to be done, okay? Um, and there's been things that, um, and, and I'm not here to, to criticize um, all other churches except where they're being unbiblical, and there are some churches that act out in ways, in quote, in worship that, it looks like they're drunk and, they're, and they call it drunk in the spirit, which, is that really from God? Um, another phrase you will 
you don't have in the Bible is slain in the Spirit. And the people talk about that, and they, they claim it, but give me a chapter and verse. Show me where, where that's here. And it's not there. So we have to be careful with what we attribute to the Holy Spirit of God and what we don't. And I'm just showing you today specifically what is and isn't in Acts chapter 2, especially according to the way some interpret and put it into practice or attempt to put it into practice, believing it to be the Spirit of God, and quite often it isn't. And then lastly, another um, thing you don't see in Acts 2, a teaching that's not there, is everyone who received the Holy Spirit will speak in tongues. Nope. And again, it's right in Acts 2. You have this miracle at the beginning. Again, keep it focused on what it is, what the text teaches, what the text says. Languages known throughout the world, okay? At the end of Acts, you have 3,000 people who received the Spirit because they were baptized, they believed, they repented. It says nothing about them speaking in tongues. So why is it that anyone would say that if you truly have the Spirit of God, you're going to speak in tongues. Because if you try to force that into Acts 2, then you're going to have to force in the spiritual language definition of speaking in tongues. And it, it's just not there. So these are things we have to be careful of and, and, and guard against um, as, as we have a, a true understanding of Scripture. And, and if, if someone isn't in agreement about this, well, don't have my argument with Pastor Paul. Have it with the Gospel of, of Acts or the, the writing of Acts from, from Luke. He's the one who put it there, and we believe he was inspired. So let's not misuse the Word of God. And what's most important is not what it doesn't say, but what it does say. And there's enough there to, 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 to get excited about. The sudden ability to speak in other known languages was a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. It was no less a miracle. Again, you can't all of a sudden speak another language, boom, without being empowered beyond yourself. And this is what they were given in that moment. The ability to speak another language that they never knew before. So that indeed was a miracle, and the Spirit stepped in and made that happen so that all these new believers, this first church of Jerusalem, first church anywhere, was ready to go out in the world and, and, and get this message moving. It does say that Peter carefully describes what is going on. As I said, that's, what, that's why I chose that 14th verse. He describes it by... Um, He's, the crowd asks in verse 12, what does this mean? Okay, you're not drunk. What are you? Where does it come from? What is it? What's happening? And Peter goes on, listen carefully. And, and we're going to finish this next week. And really today we're just looking at the first thing he says in this quote from Joel. Next week he says a lot more. Or excuse me, what we'll focus on next week is, is what he says a lot more there. But, you know, he replies, let me explain this to you and listen carefully. And Peter begins by using Scripture. Always a good idea. The Scriptures they had. He goes to the prophet Joel. And I'm going to read this from Joel. Now, one of the things that's interesting, you're probably familiar with 
the, the writers of the, the New Testament and, and Jesus himself, as expressed in the writings in the Gospels, will often quote the, the law and the prophets, what we call the Old Testament. Sometimes, if you go in your own Bible, your own translation, from what's translated there in the New Testament, and you go back to your little footnote, Joel chapter 2, 28 to 32 in this case, you'll see it almost word for word. It's very much alike. The Apostle Paul, in particular, when he does it, he seems to take liberties sometimes with the wording. You know, he, he, I'm, he's going to quote, you know, Isaiah or Elijah or whoever, and he puts a different twist or a nuance on it. Now, if we trust that the word of God was spirit-led, then, you know, Paul had permission to do that <laughs> from, from the spirit of God when he changes a little bit of wording from, he says, the prophet Isaiah said it this way, and it doesn't sound exactly what Isaiah wrote it down, but in this case, it's just about word for word. So let me read that from Joel 2. Beginning at 28. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, there is fantastic bookends to that prophecy. Okay? The first thing that it says in 28, and the last thing it says in 32. So we'll, we'll, we'll see that. Um, well, first of all, in 17, it's the last days. It is the last days. Now, when are the last days? If someone says, you know what, we're going through a pandemic and it's been worldwide and this must be a sign that we are now in the last days. Or there's been earthquakes and famines and wars and rumors of wars. Oh, there's another sign that we must have now be in the last days. And my answer to that is, yep, because we've been there for 2,000 years. In other words, the last days in God's timing, and how long is a day in God's description, God's mind? A day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. So, and, and some people take that too specifically and too literally, and that's another discussion for another time, but it's just the idea that, you know, we have our own time frames and limitations, but God has his own way of doing things. So it's been last days for a long time. Now, there are certainly indications in our New Testament about specific things that, that, that will line up in the world, that it's, it's getting closer and Christ is about to come, and are, are these those last days for that reason? That's fine, but this isn't an Acts 2 thing. Again, what does it say in the text as he's quoting Joel? He's saying the inauguration of the last days was Pentecost. And we've been in it ever since because of this prophecy from Joel that Peter here is quoting. And the first thing he says in 17, that the Spirit of God is available to all people. That's huge. He's speaking in Jerusalem. He's speaking to a Jewish crowd. He's speaking to, to people who 
were taught to believe that they were God's chosen people, chosen ones. And now, it's for everybody? Now, if they pay close attention to Jesus, this shouldn't surprise them. <laughs> Jesus, by his own actions, always pushed out beyond his own people and went to the people they didn't like and all of those things you see again and again in his actions and his words. But here it is. The Spirit wants you to move and pour out on all people. And so that's what it, it, it does say in part. And another thing, um, Peter, in Peter's description from Joel 12, <laughs> Joel 2, it says in that prophecy, dreams and visions and prophesying are some of the ways the Spirit works. Now, now dreams and visions, um, I won't pretend to be a dream interpreter um, and, and visions. I can't say that I've ever had one, but I know that sometimes God will move me and turn me in, in kind of unique ways. And so um, I would say, do dreams and visions still happen? Yes, but just be real careful. Okay, especially if someone else is claiming to have one, and quite often there are those that claim to have visions and dreams about something, and then it's, it's, a, it's a means to, 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 to get attention or to gain control over others or to become the center, and, and, and it, it can be dangerous. Okay, But I'm not going to kind of say, well, it doesn't happen, and take that as, as if I have the, the authority to tell God what he can and can't do. You know, Dreams and visions, sure. Okay, just be careful, be cautious, be prayerful if those um, come to you personally or someone you know, okay? It just says your sons and daughters will have dreams and visions, and, and so that's part of the last days. So for these last 2,000 years, in some way, sometime, someplace, God still uses that. Not something that happens a lot or frequently or everybody, but by the same token, it can and does happen. Now, he uses the word, they will also prophesy. Um, now, in, in 1 Corinthians 13, I want to use Paul's definition there. Um, 14, I'm sorry. So in, in 14, he's addressing the Corinthian church, as I mentioned a moment ago, about the speaking in tongues they were using there, which, again, is different than what happened in Acts 2. It is some kind of a spiritual language. It happened in worship, and they were using and abusing it in that setting. He also talks about prophecy. And he says in 14.2, 14, 14.3, that is 1 Corinthians, Paul writing, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. That's the purpose of prophecy in the last days, in the age of the church. Paul's definition. Don't argue with Pastor Paul. This is the Apostle Paul. 14.3, prophecies speak to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. So we need the voice of prophets in our world now. We need to have people who are going to look into a moment and say, here's what needs to happen. This is the way God is leading us. This is the way we shouldn't go. We have to be careful. We need prophets in the church, prophets in our lives. That's why it's one of the gifts. But too often we sort of categorize it as something really mysterious, and it's kind of a woo-woo person, you know, if you know what that means, okay? And no, it's simply God giving people um, a, a, a discerning and spiritual wisdom about what's the best thing to do. What do we have to do next? Do you realize if you were to 
to uh, study every prophet in the Bible and all that they wrote, how very little of it is about the future. Very little of all the prophecies, Ezekiel and Daniel and Isaiah and Jeremiah, and, you know, and, and, and even the revelation in part was not something that was all about a distant future. It was quite often, most often, about now. About their time, their place, their situation, and what God is saying, what God wants them to do. Now, it's in the Bible, so we can also learn from that and be blessed by that. Yes, there is also a portion of the prophecies that is to be fulfilled, that is to come. And we do need to to focus on them to an extent. But I believe today, partly because of all the troubles in the world, we are over-focused on them as Christians. And we're not enough focused on right now. Today, What is God showing us today? What is God revealing to us today? It says also in Joel's prophecy, wonders in heaven and on the earth. And it speaks of the sun being darkened and the moon turning to blood. And so that is part of that Jewish apocalyptic writing I mentioned a moment ago. Because we don't expect those things to be literally true. The sun being darkened in a sense like, the sun goes out, like almost like a switch, <laughs> or it's just gone. You know, I mean, someday it will be. Science tells us that eventually the sun's going to become a black hole and implode, you know, whatever, a million years from now. But um, it's the idea that, you know, smoke and fire and things can, can darken the sun. Like the light's not there. We can't see the sun. And it's like today, it's the middle of the day, and there's no, there's no sun. The sun's darkened. Or... When it says the moon turned to blood. So does that mean that satellite that orbits the earth is literally going to turn into red corpuscles and white corpuscles and hemoglobin and all the other stuff that's in blood, okay? <laughs> like the, the moon's going to be this liquid red stuff that runs through our body? Is that, does that mean that literally? No, of course we don't. We don't believe that. We don't need to believe that. That's, but it's the idea of now, sometimes there is a red moon. Sometimes the conditions in the atmosphere create that. Now, when we, so when we see those kind of things, and it gets dark in the middle of the day, doesn't that draw your attention to God? Wow, what's going on? Wow, it says that in Scripture. And even if it doesn't mean the trumpets are going to blast now and you're going home, praise God, it might mean God is just using that to get our attention. That's the kind of wonders in heaven on earth that have happened in these last days, in the age of the church, continually to draw our attention and our focus back upon him. And then just a couple more things about Peter's explanation here from, from Joel. <clears throat> really, it's an open invitation. This is the last one, I'm sorry. An open invitation for salvation to everyone. So I said there were bookends in this prophecy that Peter quotes from Joel. So again, the the one bookend says, um, in the last days I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then he goes through 
um, visions, dreams, prophesying, wonders in heaven and earth. And then he ends with this, verse 21, and everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the focus. That's what God wants us to see. All the other things in there matter. They have their place. Discerning hearts and minds and prayerfully we can understand where, what that place is. But too often we get them out of place. Too often we're looking for all these big global things to happen. Then I know God means business with the world. But what God means business with the world in is happening now. Here and now in you because his spirit is in you. And if you are truly a spirit-led, spirit-filled person, your desire is going to be that, first of all, you recognize that his message, his gospel, his love, his good news is for everybody. And everyone can call on his name. And that's the focus. And that's what the church was about to do and to become, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. Praise God. We don't have to suffer so much pain. We don't have to go through all these difficulties. We don't have to become so selfish. We don't have to be so divided. We don't have to, to have these wars and, and, and this stuff can and should be happening in this world now. We're never going to get it perfectly right. We're never going to get it all lined up the way that God would like us to have it or the way it's intended and yet we can taste on it now. We can touch on it now. The world, for all of its troubles, has some amazing things that, that God has blessed the world community with. For as concerned as we are and should be about COVID-19, God also gave us the ability to find a vaccine for it. That wasn't true a few centuries ago when one-third of Europe died from Black Plague. And yet, we, we, do we look at that as the work of God? Sure it is. And so there's blessings. The, the fact that we have so many billion people in this world, and somehow we're able to feed all of them. And there are some that have less than they should, and some are still starving. But for the most part, you know, just think about this nation. If you, if you need food, there's places to find it, including this little church, you know, once or twice a month on a Saturday. You can get food. You know, get a meal ready for you. God provides ways. God, in, in, there's, there's a lot of ways that the world is, is, is getting better, and yet at the same time, the tension builds and the troubles build. So it's, it's always been a little bit of both, but let's always keep before us that God has indeed poured out His Spirit in, in terms of its availability to everyone who calls on his name. Let's pray. Father, let us be a people that are Pentecostal people, Acts 2 people, in the truest sense of what that precious scripture teaches. That we would trust you, the, the, the mighty and mysterious one who brought the Spirit in that strange and miraculous way. But all of it came down to the work that you've given to them and the work that's been passed down to us all these centuries later to continually let the world know that the Spirit of God wants to take up residence in people and all who call on Him are saved. In His name, amen. amen.